Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read, the opinion podcast from The Times. I'm Anne Treneman, standing in for Tim Montgomery this week, and on our panel we have Matthew Paris, Libby Purvis, and Faith Lessinger. Ukraine. The Western powers should have decided in advance what their sticking point was and privately communicated this to Moscow. Obviously, it should have been that Russia could have Crimea without a fuss if it was done in an orderly way. Instead, they've squawked their protests at every inch taken, usually after it's been taken, and the impression has simply been of impotent and uncoordinated posturing. 45% of university graduates probably won't ever earn enough to repay their tuition fees and loans. That is a government calculation and it means the whole policy will have cost more than the old grants. Like PFI, it's another example of current governments shoving debt onto future generations. But the real scandal is that a lot of those students are not getting 27,000 quids worth of teaching. And meanwhile, we are overvaluing even the most dubious degrees and undervaluing vocational courses. We live in an eye culture in more ways than one. Dizzying advances in technology let us spend less time on mundane tasks and more time on ourselves, for pleasure or for work. But phones and tablets also blur the boundaries of place, alter priorities and affect health. As a report warns of a generation of sleepless technophiles at risk of diabetes and obesity, is it time to switch off? Okay, Matthew, let's start with you. I take it that you are thoroughly fed up with the diplomacy that has been taking place over the Ukraine. Yes, because it doesn't appear to have any any coordinated purpose. It's perfectly plain. We're not going to go to war with Russia uh, over Ukraine, and we certainly never were going to go to war with them over uh, Crimea. And I can actually understand the Russian position on Crimea. I mean, when we let go of Cyprus, we held on to Akrotiri, which is a, a huge base, when the Americans held on to Guantanamo Bay. In, well, when in it Cuba. came up in the Commons, of course, it was completely anti-Russia, except for one lone voice, Sir Edward Lee. So it's, you're at odds with... <laughs> oh, no. I'm on, <laughs> on Edward Lee's side. <laughs> with oh, the entire that's worrying. House of I may be wrong. <laughs> I recant. <laughs> 
I sort of agree with Matthew that you can understand what the Russians are all about because Europe is just expanding and inviting in country after country after country, and it must feel as if as if uh, sort of creeping onto Putin's doorstep. But where I differ with Matthew is, you know, the Western powers should have made their position clear in advance. I mean, are there so many potential flare-ups across the world? Has somebody got to be sitting down and making positions clear before anything happens? Every time you'd be spending nothing, nothing but diplomatic notes shooting to and fro saying, you know, if ever you do this, by the way, we're not on your side. It, that's the problem. And if we remember, obviously, the red line on Syria and how badly that went, Obama coming out and saying, right, here is the red line. The red line is chemical weapons. It's either use of chemical weapons or evidence they're moving around. Lo and behold, chemical weapons were proved to have been used. And what do we do at that point? If we create sticking blocks for ourselves, then I agree we look weak if we don't stick by them, but we're, we're sort of shackling ourselves into situations that we can't predict. Yeah, on your point, Faye, I, I think you do have a, a point. On, on Libby's, uh, yes, someone should have been coordinating and it should be the President of the United States uh, who leads the, the Western world and there should be a good relationship between him and the Foreign Affairs Commissioner in the European Union and I don't see that in as big a case as this it wouldn't have been possible to coordinate a position. When though? At what point you know, would, would this sort of fierce message have been sent out? What would the Russians have to do or not do? I mean do you have to sort of watch? And... Firstly it would not, not have been stated publicly it would have been stated privately to, to the Kremlin. Well of course it may have been for all I know. <laughs> Uh, there may have been private indications that, OK, you, you, you take Crimea, but please stop there. And I agree, it has, it has certain kind of uncomfortable reverberations with Sudetenland and, uh, and, and the idea of staking out a position in advance with, with Hitler. But I, I, I feel that at the moment, what we're, we're giving comfort and false encouragement to the dissidents and the Democrats and, and the good people in Ukraine and leading them to believe that in the end we're going to come to their aid as the Hungarians once were in the 1950s and in the end we aren't and some of them may but be slaughtered in their beds. I'm interested, I mean, are you drawing the line at the Ukraine because there are other countries that are very similar except that they are members of NATO? Yes, uh, you draw the line. I mean, NATO is a is a pact, and an attack on one is an attack on all. So that would go for the Baltic states, probably not Belarus. Maybe the Russians can have that too. <laughs> I do agree, though. That there is, a, I think, if we sort of step out of of newspapers from and look at it from a public perspective, there is a sense of total chaos around diplomacy. And if you think at how much you know nations spend on diplomacy, that you know our, our diplomats are everywhere; they're in every single country. And it does feel like every time one of these conflicts comes up, we slightly take taken by surprise. It seems to move very, very quickly. Yes. And it does, there does feel an element of chaos. And what we have, I mean, we've got this uh, a reminder of that fantastic joke about you know, we say uh, an unarmed policeman saying stop or I'll say stop again yeah. because we are, we, we <laughs> yes. restrict ourselves we get to a point, we're not going, you're right, we're never going to take military action, even though there are little voices McCain said it yesterday, oh, well, maybe we should take military action but it does feel like we don't have a concerted and unified approach, so I agree with you on that Yes, and I, I think there's this great sense of, of ineffectiveness. My, my brother was looking at the paper the other day and saying, oh god, you know if Putin really better watch it, you know, because one step further and he might get a quite severe letter from William Hague. <laughs> <laughs> God. I know. I mean, I'd, again, it's 
I don't usually agree with Dennis Skinner, but um, he's in the Commons, and every time Haig stands up and says something that we're doing, which is more or less nothing, he sort of slaps his own hand, and uh, <laughs> it's getting quite red by now. But um, it does it does feel as if we're just going shuttling from one meeting to another. William Haig's very good foreign secretary, but he does bleat a bit, doesn't he, Anne? Don't you think is bleat the right word? Well, I think that he's quite eloquent on these kind of things. But the main, as you say, there is now a real issue because we have to back it up. It's happened, what is going on. And and I, where I also think it's interesting what you have to say is that, I mean, Ukraine has been a bit of a mistake waiting to happen for some time. So it's not as if they couldn't have anticipated that this was going to explode in one way or the other. The only rather cheering thing is that apparently all the, the Russian sort of uh, investor visa uh, oligarchs lurking around in London are absolutely horrified now. Well, do you think they're, that starting, they're starting to feel, I mean, they're, they're, they'll probably have no effect on Putin, but apparently there's, there's real panic down Primrose Hill. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's, none of us would know that. <laughs> not being near there. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm slightly worried that we've given the Ukraine away. Yeah, we never had it in the first place, did we? That's the, that's the point. We've never had it in the first place, but there is a huge sort of, if that happens, there is a huge precedent. I suppose so. They're not going to attack us. R- Russia's a hooligan country. They, uh, they, they should be seen not as great, great power adversaries, but as hooligans. They can do a lot of damage and mischief, but there's not going to be a coordinated attack on Western Europe, and that's what we care about. Well, I think that's the last word. (laughs) That's sort of the final word. Libby, I'm interested in why you've suddenly alighted on the tuition fee issue, because it hasn't been in the news or anything recently. Well, it has, actually. Chukamuna, though nobody was listening, uh, sort of um, (laughs) pointed out uh, really quite forcibly that there are these figures now which suggest very strongly in government figures that most well, at least 45% and possibly more uh, present students will never, ever earn enough to pay back these enormous 27,000 quid fees, you know, plus loans. And this does matter because, of course, it pushes on debt, it pushes on government spending to another generation. Um, But it, it has always enraged me, this notion of the graduate premium, that automatically by going to university, even if you do absolutely nothing much there and refer to it as uni because you're too lazy to say versity, <laughs> even then, um, you, that, that, that you will earn more across your lifetime than people who don't go to university. And it used to be true. Of course it did because there was a minority of university graduates and they went into the professions and the learned professions. And so they did earn more over a lifetime. Now this is not necessarily necessarily the case at all. And we are sort of corralling a lot of kids into university to pay these enormous fees who are getting minimal teaching, maybe two or three lectures a week where they could perfectly well have done it online. And we are undervaluing, meanwhile, and Lord Baker is right about this, we are undervaluing vocational education. And I just, I I think the whole thing has become skewed and unthought through and depressing. I agree about vocational education. But that's part of the the whole idea. We're not corralling anybody to go to university. And people, now that they have to borrow the money to go themselves, are beginning to ask themselves, is this actually going to boost my earning power? And some of them are answering no to that question. And it's going to be, it'll filter out people who don't seriously want a degree. And that's good. Some, some of them are, but there are an awful lot who really still buy into this thing that if you go to uni, you will earn more over a lifetime. And that's a cheat and a lie. Well, we haven't. I mean, uh, Matthew's point about the 
and ties in with Libby's point that if you've got too many people who are expecting to go to university, this goes back to Labour saying we should have 50% of people at university, that you make it a free-for-all. If you put up the, the fees, then in theory, those only those that really, really want to go, go. The fact is that's not the case. Those who can afford to go and feel they have the financial security and the financial backing to go, go. And this is something we have to resolve. Now, I don't agree with you on the point that um, the arts, yeah, it's true that arts degrees probably don't cost £9,000 a year in some cases, but what are we meant to do? Do we make science degrees more expensive when actually we need not only vocational um, training, but we need more science, we need engineering, we need science, we need computing. France, I taught in France for a year, and they prioritise science over the arts. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. By saying, if you're a very bright student, you should be going into science. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think it's quite a clever way to say which are the areas of society we need to boost, and this is one. I am, I am with you to a great extent on that, and as an arts graduate, I am actually all in favour of, of good, strong humanities degrees. But what has been happening, because a degree is something which must take three years at least and must have this strong academic and theoretical content, what you're getting is what would have been vocational courses at polytechnics are being academicised and time wasted. I know a lad who did a course, a university degree in water sports management. And I looked at what he actually did. And basically, you know, a sort of six month crash course (laughs) in boat driving, you know, some first aid and another couple of months of business studies. That would have been it. It could have been over in one year. In the old polytechnic days, it would have been. Now it has to be called a degree. It has to cost enormous sums of money. And yeah, but that, that started before the, 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 the cost of tuition fees was put up. And yeah, putting up the cost now. of tuition fees is going to cause that man to ask himself, is actually this the best way of spending X thousand pounds in three years of my life? The sort of question that I think students of my generation never asked ourselves. We just said you go to university because it's a good thing. Well, that that, that, that automaticity is going to stop, I hope. Well, you would think so. But at the moment, it hasn't stopped. I mean, that's what's happening. And I think your point about the fact that it's actually saving up debt. I mean, actually, what, it's, what it is, is saving up debt, more government debt, because if people can't pay back their like loans. Like PFI. It is a little bit like PFI. And this is an issue that really hasn't come back. And there hasn't been time enough for a government to basically say, oh, this, this isn't working the way we thought it would work. I think they really thought there'd be fewer who went to university. And that they wouldn't, ha- and that they would be able to pay their debts back. And of course, the awful thing is, it's the wrong fewer. 
you know, it will be it what will is be the, the wrong poorer, the, the, It will be the poorer kids, the the kids whose families are terrified of debt. Well, let's know, wait for the who are bright and should we, go. Well, we're we getting we're starting to get the evidence. Just the have a little look so at the Sutton Trust figures. Is um, Nick Hillman, who was a um, an advisor at the time that tuition these nine thousand pounds a year tuition fees were brought in, and he has raised the kind of alarm that we're getting to a point where because unemployment is higher than we were hoping it would be right now, although it's falling, um, that we're getting to a point where the government will not save money through this. That doesn't, I mean, there are two different arguments. One is the financial argument and one is the argument around sort of incentives for going to university and it's whether those things are tied together or separate and I think there's two slightly contrasting arguments. Just one practical question which you may know the answer to, Libby. I was talking to a student friend of mine and, you know, I was saying to her, well, you don't have to pay it back if you don't earn much more money, so what's the problem? And she said, the problem is when I want to get a mortgage, I'm afraid that I will have this debt around my neck. Yeah, but it doesn't. Uh, I'm still it, paying off my student debts. I'm 29. I'm in a good job and I'm still paying off my student debts. And it doesn't make a difference. And that is doesn't. a message that needs to get out. Yeah. It doesn't at all. Mm. It's considered to be totally separate from other types of debt. And But you're right that this fear exists. And before I went to university, I was petrified of going into debt. And that was before the, the 9,000 came in. So th- maybe it needs to be better education on education as well so that people feel mm. they can take on these debts and not be frightened. Faye, you have uh, a question about what you call the I culture, little I, and basically linking all of our use of technology, the constant use. Um, not only are we all going to have necks that, all, that go down automatically <laughs> all the time, but that to the fact lack of sleep and basically health issues and that and kind of thing. Now, why are you? I, I, I can imagine that you do spend quite a lot of time on your iPad, but uh, constantly yeah. on my phone and iPad. This, and do you do you actually? This is the question, I suppose. Do people use their iPads and iPhones in bed? Yes, yes, they do. This is on the back of. There's a study that's out today <laughs> from the Lancet. I'm probably coming to this argument so late, but it actually came as a bit of a shock to me. The, there's two um, academics in the Lancet are arguing that this is a kind of great problem in society: sleeplessness and linked to the use of technology, and that actually. Doctors should be, when they say to you, oh, how much do you smoke, how much do you drink, how much exercise do you get, should be saying, how much sleep do you get? And by the way, leave your iPad outside the bedroom because when you go to bed, you should be shutting down entirely and you're not. And A... Yes, personally, my goodness, I am on my phone and my iPad. You know, that's how I fall asleep with them both in my hand. It's you terrible. are kidding? No, absolutely, it's true. And I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> I alone find in that, that amazing. But I do find, you know, I do actually think this is quite a serious issue. We don't switch off. We never. When I talk about in my sort of pricey the boundaries of place, it used to be, and I'm sorry to sound all fuddy duddy, but it used to be that if you were at home, you were at home and you would do homely things, and if you were out walking in the countryside, you were out walking in the countryside, and you would, that would be a set of things. And if you work now the our ability to work or email or be on the phone crosses all those places so we're becoming it's, it's a constant in our lives there's less variety and i worry about the impact it has on us i only disagree with you on one point you describe it as labor saving it isn't labor saving because it creates labor as well as at the same time as speeding up the the, the 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 process of dealing with the labour that it has created, but I now <laughs> spend more of my time on what I would call my virtual office than I did in the days when everything went by post and I had and a secretary had a and, and dictated replies to her to those few letters from readers of the Times who cared enough to uh, write out a letter, uh, get an envelope, uh, get an address and put a stamp on it. That, that was well, a wonderful you, filter. I know that you still get quite a few letters, uh, real letters, as do yes, I. Yes, um, Do you actually use your iPhone in, in bed? <laughs> no, I don't. I, what I do is I, I have the laptop uh, right. on the... I have my, a desk in my bedroom 
and I uh, wake up in the middle of the night and start worrying about something, and then I get up and switch on the the laptop, which is even I, worse. The landscape would so not approve of that. What about you, Libby? Do you so actually sleep I, with your your I iPhone? Love these, these virtual tools, and and like all tools, I mean, all down the history of mankind, you sit down every now and again and think, am I working for it or is it working for me? And you make sure it's the right way around. I'm interested about the sleep thing because I read about this a while ago when it first sort of came out. Somebody did an experiment you know, that the, the light off your iPad could stop you getting proper sleep and so on. Now, I write theatre reviews and I have to file them by 11.30 or midnight online. And therefore, I'm absolutely wired from typing and typing and staring into a screen. And yes, it can be very, very difficult to go to sleep after that. However, I find the best way to go to sleep is to set your iPad up sideways on a pillow next to you (laughs) and watch some very, very old sitcoms, which you know very well. And they kind of soothe you off to sleep. Yeah, I've been watching Drop the Dead Donkey, (laughs) discovering how many of the political, how many of the political preoccupations of that period are exactly the same. And yes, minister and this kind of lulls me off to sleep and uh, I actually sleep better for having done that but it, it may not be something I would recommend well, to you have your husband on the other, other side this is when he's not around <laughs> oh I see this is, this is when he's not just around just checking because, uh, if, if as, he's as you been know, banned to another room so you can have your I lead a nomad life and as often as not he's, he's in a different place because I've been to the theatre and I'm sort of crashing out at some friends uh, or something so no it's uh, I think but the important the core thing honestly is you got with all tools to say is it working for me or am I working for it? But are we capable of doing that? I mean, that's that's one of the questions that I think it's interesting to obey. (laughs) I think some people are capable and some people are not. Some people find it very hard because they're connected to the internet more than they're connected to You want to go to sea for at least three or four weeks of every year. (laughs) I am at sea with no signal whatsoever, working watchers four hours on, eight hours off, And are you sleeping better then? Um, Yeah, you you sleep fine, you read a lot of books, you come back and you find the news hasn't really moved on that much. (laughs) You know, and all your emails, a lot of them were a complete waste of time anyway and so you might as well just ignore them. Ah, Well, that is one of the truths about emails, isn't it, that no one ever says. I think at least 75% of them are... Ignorable. Yeah. I think there's a real question here around what, what we do about it because I definitely yeah. don't agree with sort of interventionist techniques, although they are being proposed. As, um, the head teacher at Wellington College said, I mean, interventionist is a bit harsh, but that there should be imposed kind of periods of almost meditation or silence with children in school so they can, they can have switching off time and thinking time. And I have incidentally started getting very jealous of people who smoke because I feel like they stand outside and just have <laughs> five minutes, probably on their phone still. But I do, I do wonder what we should be doing about it. And I don't think we should impose things you know, like cut-off times. But I wonder if we should be saying to ourselves, you know, I'm going to give myself an hour now, as Libby does, or eight hours on a boat, you know, and, and actually say I'm going to have a period now because I don't think we're doing it. I'm not doing it. Well, something I've learned to do, uh, I'm, I'm not very good at IT, but you, you can actually tag an email with a special colour. <laughs> and so I go through my emails every day. You're going to prioritise your And, and I, I tag them all to-do uh, in blue. And then I, I do my to-do emails once a week. Do so you? that yes. Oh, I tag yes. them and forget about them. No, no. Uh, <laughs> they're gone then. I think that the interesting thing I find though is, you know, it used to be said, I mean, I can remember people saying you shouldn't have a TV in your bedroom because oh, it's, you it it keeps you up. Or you shouldn't read. In um, bed. I, I, my parents tried to stop me reading in bed because oh, I was too, reading late. The light late. off, though, that's yes. why I am. And we've now got to the point where we're just... The bed, I mean, 
constantly people say, oh, yes, no, I do that in my bed or I write on my bed or I'm using, you know, I can even do that on my bed. And I'm like, is the bed the new, like, kitchen? I don't know. (laughs) Back in the 30s, Lady Diana Cooper, her son John Julius Norwich has reported, uh, would do all her letters and and correspondence in in bed and and telephoning and organise her life in bed in the morning. Quite right, too. It sounds very grand. Maybe she's spending more time in bed. Is this the the conclusion? We'll work from our bed. Well, this possibly the conclusion. Well, I think that that is it for this week. Thank you very much to our panel, Matthew Paris, Libby Purvis, and Faith Schlesinger. And please head to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral to read the articles in full. And remember to subscribe via iTunes. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.